Welcome, everyone, to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Gary Schneeberger, the co-host of the podcast and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. And you have clicked play, subscribe, um, uh, listen to a podcast that deals in uh, what can be a difficult subject, in crucible experiences, um, those painful moments in life, failures, setbacks, those things that kind of knock us off our feet, de derail us, change the trajectory of our lives. But the reason that we talk about them, it's, it's extremely important. We interview guests and we talk about um, uh, these experiences in order to offer hope to folks, uh, maybe like you who are listening, who are going through those experiences now. So we don't want to camp out here. We don't want to wallow in those moments. We want to learn from those moments. We want to leverage those moments so that we can um, begin the path of uh, bouncing back from those moments and leading a life of significance. And here with me, as always, is the founder of Crucible Leadership and the host of the podcast, Warwick Fairfax. Warwick, uh, we've got uh, we've got a good one today. Absolutely, uh, great to be here, Gary. So our good one today, our guest today is Ed Cressy, and I'm going to tell all of you a little bit about Ed. Um, I've got to say before I read Ed's bio that um, we always ask guests to submit biographies to us that I can read on air, and um, Ed's has the best lead, the best beginning I've ever had someone submit to us. And as a former journalist, I like to think I know a little bit about leads, but here's the Ed Cressy story in a few sentences. Ed Cressy is probably the only person who was once arrested by the FBI, then went on to turn his life around and receive a community service award from the director of the FBI. He transformed his life from drug addiction, mental illness, and criminal activity to follow a path of spirituality, self-improvement, and service to others. Ed volunteers in, in maximum security prisons and jails, helping incarcerated men and women gain skills for empowerment, entrepreneurism, and self-advocacy. Ed volunteers for law enforcement, helping the San Francisco Police Department and FBI better serve communities affected by incarceration and addiction. He's achieved his lifelong dream of becoming a writer by publishing work in the Washington Post, the San Francisco Chronicle, and Vox. His book, My Addiction and Recovery, Just Because You're Done with Drugs Doesn't Mean Drugs Are Done with You, is being published in April of 2020. Ed, welcome to Beyond the Crucible. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Warwick. It's great to be here. Well, Ed, thanks so much for coming uh, on the podcast. Um, you have just some amazing experiences. Uh, I'd love to start with just your story and how that led up to your crucible, but just tell us a bit about Ed Cressy and your background and, you know, kind of who you are, how you grew up and uh, how that led to uh, some of the challenging experiences you had. Sure. I grew up with a lot of opportunities, a lot of privileges. My childhood was idyllic in many ways. I grew up in the beautiful countryside of Massachusetts. When I got into junior high and high school, you know, what had happened was I was always, uh, I was just kind of a different kid. I was very uncoordinated. I couldn't play sports or compete in gym class. I loved to read. I would come home from the library with these big stacks of books because I always liked to escape into the world of fantasy. 
more so than I could feel comfortable in the reality of the world around me. I uh, was very sensitive. I would cry quite easily. So where I went to high school, reading, crying, being uncoordinated, not exactly a campaign platform upon which one might run for class president. <laughs> yeah, <I got> that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll tell you, work. one of the very first things I felt good at was drinking. Mm. When I started to learn how to drink around 14 years old, progressing into very heavy drinking when I was 16, I began to feel like, you know, I have a talent. I have a skill. I have some way I can feel like I'm an effective part of the world around me. The only other thing in my life up till then which had made me feel like that was writing. When I would write my stories or assignments in English class back in grade school, sometimes the teachers would call me up to the front of the room to read my assignments. These were some of the first times I felt like I was good at something. The kids who would bully me during recess would sometimes come up to me after I'd read one of my stories aloud and tell me that they liked it, clap me on the shoulder. Boy, that is quite the dichotomy. You know, they bully you and then say, hey, Ed, boy, that was a really great story. And part of you seeks affirmation through drinking, as I'm assuming when you drink. You know, I mean, I was pretty shy in, in, in school and not particularly athletic, so I can at least relate at some level. Uh, but when you drink, it makes you less shy, less inhibited. And probably you felt accepted. Hey, boy, Ed's really, Ed's really quite something when he drinks, right? He's kind of quite the personality. And so it's, those are two very different things to get affirmation, drinking and writing. I mean, it's just an amazing dichotomy as you look back. Absolutely. The one thing that for people to understand about alcoholism and drug addiction, as I've learned, is that drinking and drugs usually are not our problem. They are our attempt at a solution. And as you alluded to, work. My problem of not fitting in, my problem of feeling that I couldn't find acceptance within my peer group, that was something I solved through drinking and through getting high. My dream of being a writer, that was something I could push to the side because writing, as we know, Gary, you especially, writing takes discipline. Writing takes perseverance. Writing takes being able to fail and get back up again. I didn't have the self-confidence or the belief in myself to do any of that. But drinking and getting high gave me the illusions, the false beliefs in myself. Drinking and getting high, just like you said, Warwick, made me feel like I was somebody, made me feel like I could contribute to the world around me. These are the reasons I pursued a lifestyle of heavy drinking and deep, devastating addiction to drugs for so many years because they, they solved the problem, basically, of me being me. I'm going to jump wow. in at this point, and normally, listeners, you know that Warwick is the chief questioner here, and that's not going to change in this episode, but Ed and I share more than just being writers, people who grew up to be writers. Ed, I also have an alcoholic background, and when I hear you say fitting in, found something you were good at, I was uh, quote-unquote popular, whatever that means in those ages athletic and those kind of things, but it was a sense of camaraderie that I could build with people when those kinds of things happen. And I say that to you to say, hey, brother, we have affinity there, but also for the listener, there are people, regardless of what their crucibles may be and what they struggle with and how they deal with that, but your definition of an addiction, it's the symptom, whatever that might be, drugs, alcohol, 
other forms of distraction from what it is you uh, can most productively be putting your time toward, that's a symptom. The disease, the addiction is what that under that underlying root is, that problem is. Why you do what you do. One of the one of the most insightful things I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous was it's not how much you drink that makes you an alcoholic. It's why you drink. And for me, why I drank was to change the way I felt. And I think there are, I'm certain there are listeners right now, alcoholism may not be your problem. It may be. Drug addiction, those kind of things may not be your problem. But there is something in your core, perhaps, about how you feel about yourself, as Ed described, as I've described. There's something in the core about how you feel about yourself that you feel you need to change. And sometimes in doing that, it can be unhealthy. Sometimes in doing that, I mean, Warwick, you have experienced this in some way by trying to be good enough to take over the family business, um, even though that wasn't necessarily your vision. You didn't necessarily feel like that was where you were supposed to go. So I think all of us who've had crucibles have a bit of that in us, that idea that if we behave in this way or if we change our behavior in this way or if we try this thing, that's going to put us in a better position. And sometimes it can actually, instead of putting water on the on the fire that is our crucible, it can add gasoline to that fire. Is that fair, Warwick? Yeah, no, I think what you're saying, Gary, is profoundly true. I mean, we all want to fit in uh, self-worth. I mean, I have my own struggles, but they were different. Um, I can relate to what Ed's saying in the sense that, you know, I was very shy. I went to a kind of exclusive boys' school, but um, I wasn't very athletic because my family was so wealthy, you know, prominent status, owning a huge media company. It was far different than the other boys. And so, you know, I didn't get bullied a lot, but some, there were one or two, and some would taunt me saying, oh, Warwick, you think you're better than us? Just because my family had a bunch of money and my dad had some cars, one of which was a uh, Aston Martin that uh, was almost identical to the one that James drove in Goldfinger, funnily enough. But that's another story that was kind of cool. And I'd say, no, you know, no, I don't, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I worked very hard and got good grades. And so, I don't know, maybe that's, I don't know quite how I cope with it all. But, um, yeah, that sense of not belonging, not feeling accepted. Yeah, I can absolutely relate. So, so we're understanding a bit of the why behind some of the, you know, really challenging circumstances that happened later. You may, I mean, I'm just fascinated by the dichotomy between writing and um and drinking, I mean, riding, you can fail. Drinking, I always wonder, can you fail at that? I mean, you just drink and will have the desired effect. You know, it's, I don't know, I guess failing and not failing, maybe you don't think about it that way, but it's maybe, did it feel like easier than riding in a sense? I don't know if that question makes sense, Ed. It makes perfect sense. It did feel easier. Addiction, Warwick, and uh, Gary, it was beautifully put uh, what you were saying. Addiction usually serves a purpose. The purpose is oftentimes to push us along pathways we otherwise would have never undertaken. That's eventually when we get to living a life of significance and we get beyond our crucible moment, usually we can look back and see our addiction as, uh, as driving us towards a goal we otherwise never would have uh, pushed ourselves towards. The other part of addiction is it's a way of avoiding going after our dreams. I've always felt that for the addict, for the alcoholic, certainly the way I was and maybe many others, it's a matter of adopting goals, 
versus pursuing dreams. You know, for many people, goals and dreams are the same thing. A woman's dream is to be a business owner, so her mm -hmm. goal is to own a business. Mm -hmm. A man's dream is to be a marathoner, so his mm -hmm. goal is to run a marathon. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a goal is something we want to achieve. A dream is someone we want to be. For many mm -hmm. people, they're very closely related. Hmm. For me, and for many other addicts, the dream is to feel normal. Right. The dream is to feel accepted. You know, the right. dream is to be a writer. The dream is to just feel comfortable in my own skin. No business ownership, no home, no athletic pursuit is right. ever going to make that dream happen. So instead, we pursue these goals. We, we do pursue these goals. For me, I, I earned a college degree. I owned a home. I had a career with a organization that went on to be named the number one best company in America to work for by Fortune magazine. I pursued and I achieved these goals, but they were essentially meaningless because they never were going to get me to my dream of feeling normal, of feeling work, like you said, like mm -hmm. I belong. And they weren't going to get me to my dream of being a writer. And I want to talk a little bit about that next phase of your life, college and working for you know one of the most advanced companies in America. But I almost have this picture of you in a, a desert and you see an oasis you know, but it turns out to be a mirage. You get there and it's not there. So no matter how much you succeed, you know, the nice home, the nice cars, it's like that in of itself doesn't necessarily make you feel good about yourself. And so you keep pursuing this mirage and you get there and it's like, I thought I was there, but it just vanished right into thin air. But you feel like, okay, it's over the next sand dune. I mean, do you, do you follow what I'm saying? Like it, it feels illusory that you keep pursuing something, you can never attain it by just drinking or success. Or I mean, do you feel that, that it, you're constantly pursuing something but never getting there in a sense? The oasis, yes, that's a wonderful image. It's a condition of comfort versus happiness. As human beings, we're hardwired not to be happy, but to be comfortable or mm -hmm. to put it another way, to be safe. Mm -hmm. Comfort and happiness are not the same thing. For me, I could be very comfortable in that world of addiction as I abandoned more and more of those goals and sank deeper towards my crucible moment as I sunk into psychosis and threw away my home, my life savings, my career, much more to addiction. I was still, I remained comfortable. I knew I could survive as a drug addict from one day to another. I knew I could survive. I'd done it for years, for decades. Mm. However, pursuing my dream, becoming a writer, I did not have the belief in myself that I could survive going after my dream. I feared failure, but even more so, I feared success. I, instead of going after that dream, which would have been very mm. uncomfortable, I stayed in that unhappy yet comfortable world of addiction. So, you know, last thing before we get to your crucible moment, it's fascinating you use that phrase, fearing success. Uh, there's a woman by the name of Marianne Williamson who you know, spent a lot of time in the coaching world. And I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. She has this great book. I think it's Return to Love. And she's uh, spiritual in, in that broad sense of the word. She has this wonderful phrase that um, our deepest fear is success. Our deepest fear that we will be successful beyond measure. I mean, there's I can't do it justice, but um, that's exactly what she talks about. But So let's talk about the crucible moment because you graduated college and you're doing very well. So talk, I mean, it's, I mean, you achieved a lot considering like a lot of us growing up, your self-worth wasn't that high. So 
which is interesting, but talk about the success, the job, the cars. So where were you just before, you know, things all uh, went downhill, so to speak? Sure. On the surface, I had a lot. I had a lot of help. I came from a relatively privileged background. So my college education was paid for and uh, my down payment on my home was paid for. I worked hard and I, I got to a point where I had that career. I owned that home. I was competing in kickboxing as an amateur. I was never very good at kickboxing, but I would get in the gym and I would train a lot. And on the surface, I did have a lot of, I had a lot of the trappings of success. Yet I'd been a drug addict all along. I would binge use on weekends. I followed this path for, for years. It was like a, my life became like a seesaw. On one side was the home and the career and the relationships and the, the beautiful motorcycle I used to ride. On the other side was my addiction, my binge using every weekend. One can maintain a seesaw like that for some time. I maintained it for years, but eventually something's got to give. For me, in 2000, the, the seesaw kind of plunged onto the one side. I began using methamphetamine every day. I graduated from smoking it. I graduated from snorting meth to smoking it. That's when the psychosis began to set in. I started to hear disembodied voices claiming to be from the police department or the FBI threatening to kidnap and torture me to death. I believed uh, they were trying to pin 9-11 on me, that they were hiring cults and motorcycle gangs to, uh, to come and kill me. I would rip apart my electronics and punch holes in my drywall looking for hidden surveillance devices. I would see airplanes and the helicopters following me, pictures of myself in newspapers and on the internet. This was my life for years and years. I used to carry a 357 pistol everywhere I went because I was afraid of people coming after me. I'd come to in the mornings with a 12-gauge shotgun on my chest. That's where I'd fallen asleep or passed out the night before waiting for gangsters to kick down my door. It gets worse and worse. Eventually, I got to a point in 2007 after bouncing in and out of jails. I was uh, stripped naked and locked into a padded cell for 24-hour observation by the sheriff's department. I'd, uh, I'd bounced in and out of rehabs, destitution. I'd long since thrown away my life savings. My it was nowhere near employable. Living in this little flop house hotel, hadn't showered or brushed my teeth in months, given away my beloved dog, the, the only creature left really that I felt cared about me or that I felt I was able to extend love to. I'd, I'd given my dog away. It was just terrible. My physical surroundings were very bad and my mindset was much worse. I was a drain on my communities. I was stealing from welfare. I used to get food stamps and go buy steaks and then trade the steaks to my drug dealer for meth. It just, you know, uh, work and carry. I could go on and on and on. But, you know, I think your listeners get a sense of my poor decisions, my poor choices, my mistakes led me to a point where my only three options were basically to get locked up, to get covered up, like six feet of earth covered up, or to get sobered up. I mean, I could have maybe gone into long-term homelessness and, and avoided some of that, but basically I was at the end of the road. So I'm assuming at that point your self-worth was, I don't know, rock bottom probably doesn't do it justice. It's probably lower than rock bottom, but um, did you ever think of like, hurting yourself, suicide, or, 
you know, the best thing for humanity would be for Ed Cressy not to be around? I mean, did you ever get to that kind of point? Ironically, when I did get to that point and I stayed there for years, the worst of it was after I got clean. Because Mm -hmm. like we were saying, drugs are usually not our problem. Drugs are our attempt at a solution. And for listeners, that's one reason why it's often so hard for an addicted person like me to quit drugs is because when we quit, now we have no more solution. After I got clean, I had nothing left to tamp down that negativity I felt towards myself and which I projected onto the world around me. So, Warwick, the answer to your question is yes, I was suicidally depressed, yet, ironically, the worst of it came after I got clean off the meth. Wow, because that sort of medicated the pain. So, um, it sounds like, you know, just sort of on the streets, in a flop house, you lose your house, car, I mean, mean, dog, that's got to be as as bad as anything that you lost, because you loved the dog and the dog loved you. That's, that probably felt worse than losing the house. But uh, so how did you, um, so you're in this terrible place. How in the world did you begin to make that hard decision to try to move beyond that? And I'm fascinated when you said it, it almost, it got worse as you got sober. How did you even begin to think that, you know, why change? I mean, a lot of people don't change. I'm assuming, you know, much more than I do, but to just continue in that addicted lifestyle for the rest of their lives. How did you make a a choice to go a different path? I got to a point that there was one night where I got all the only clothes I owned basically was this filthy tuxedo because I'd worked at the strip clubs and got fired. And uh, I I would wander around the city of San Francisco at night with this filthy tux. I found myself in a fancy hotel lingering outside a ballroom where a wedding reception was taking place, thinking I'm going to go in and, you know, blend in wearing my tuxedo. As I stood at the doorway to that wedding reception in that hotel ballroom, I realized that in the past few years, five couples had gotten married, 10 of my closest friends. One of them had asked me to be the best man. Warwick, do you know how many of those weddings I had shown up to? Yeah, zero, not Mm. one. 10 of my closest friends married. I didn't attend a single wedding. More than that, for years, I've been hearing these disembodied voices, and I considered Mm -hmm. them my spouses. Mm. I'd gotten so attached to this life of the disembodied voices and the FBI Mm. conspiracies that I believed I was married to these voices. Something inside me clicked. Something, the wheels turned. I realized work. I was certainly never going to become a writer. I was never going to be able to contribute to relationships. I was not going to be an effective part of the world around me. I was I didn't know what a life of significance was at the mm-hmm. time. I wouldn't have been able to use those words or explain mm-hmm. what they meant, but something inside me realized it was either a life of significance or no life whatsoever. It was that mm-hmm. moment somewhere deep inside me I found the strength to do the very very hard work that continues to this day of turning my life around pursuing that path of significance and bringing something to the world around me rather than taking and taking and taking, which had been what I was all about for many years. I want to pause here for just a moment for the listener and rewind sort of the last seven or eight minutes that we've heard Ed talking. Ed, your story is fantastic in the sense of not great, 
but it's a big story. It's a story with a lot of elements that many of us, even those of us who have who have addictive pasts, have not experienced. And I want to make sure the listeners hear that story and think there's no relevance to you in your own crucible experience because the point we're at now, what Ed just said, that he had two choices. He could live in his crucible as outsized as that crucible was, as hard as it may be for some of us to understand it, he could live in that crucible or he could learn lessons from it, he could move beyond it and point himself towards significance. That is what all of us face in the crucible experiences in our lives. So you listener, as you're hearing these words, please don't be lulled into thinking that Ed's story doesn't have relevance to you because the experiences of your crucible aren't the same as his. The emotions of your crucible, not feeling worthy, feeling like there's no hope at times, feeling like, how am I going to get out? Feeling like you can't overcome it. You'll never be able to bounce back from it. Those emotions that Ed described, those are universal. Those are things that apply to your situation your failure, your setback, every bit as much as they apply to Ed's. And as we continue this conversation, as Ed talks now and, and, and work, and Ed talk about the further bounce back and then the true life of significance that Ed's found, remember that those emotions are universal to all of us who've had crucible experiences. Absolutely. Very well said. I mean, we all... Pretty much every human struggles with self-worth if they're honest and, you know, just how do you overcome that? That's so true. So, Ed, you're in this slow point, and I'm sensing that you had a choice, which was to either continue the lifestyle that was so destructive of yourself and relationships. I mean, missing weddings of 10 close friends, that's obviously going to not do your self-esteem any good. Uh, You know, it tends to increase the sense of self-loathing and self-hatred, if you will. But I'm sensing this concept of significance, this concept of serving others, that something in there was pretty key to begin those baby steps of moving, try to get beyond just this addictive lifestyle that you were facing. Does that make sense, Ed, that there was something about significance that was part of the key to pulling you out of that? Is that true? Just was that if I was going to pursue my dream, I was going to need self-confidence. I was going to need to believe in myself. Becoming a writer, that was maybe a little bit too big of a jump for me to take right away, especially with my self-confidence and Gary, as you put it so well, my sense of hopelessness, my feeling that nobody understood me, my beliefs that the world was just not going to cooperate with my achieving my dreams, all, all those feelings. In order to overcome them, I took the smaller steps of serving my communities. I became a volunteer first responder through the fire department. I worked for a political campaign for a guy who became a close friend and was really about improving his neighborhoods and the quality of life for the people around him. I would volunteer everywhere I could. I would go to the SPCA and collect donations outside of the Macy's windows at Christmas time or around holiday time. I began to find these ways to serve my communities. They were kind of smaller ways. I could 
bite off little chunks. I could become a volunteer for a few hours, even if I couldn't make that big leap to becoming a writer. This was a little pathway that I could take. I didn't realize it at the time. Looking back, I see that being of value to others, giving my time in order to serve others, that was ultimately serving my own dreams, which hopefully as I continue my writing career will actually serve others more and more. It was kind of a, that was the pathway. Yeah, I think another really important thing for listeners um, to hear and just more generally about Ed's path is it's often baby steps is, is really the path to getting beyond uh, just this feeling of self-worth. While you know, my background is very different, I can relate on one level that, as listeners know, when you know, growing up in this 150-year-old large family media business, um, I was a person of faith, founded by a strong person of faith. So when that you know, $2 billion takeover kind of went bust and bankrupt, and I felt responsible for losing a 150-year-old family legacy, yeah, my sense of self-worth was at rock bottom. You know, there weren't too many jobs for out-of-work media moguls. I mean, it was, you know, <laughs> moved back to the U.S. where my wife is from. It was, I mean, it was grim. I just felt like anything that I would touch, I mean, I'm just going to mess up, you know. So I was, but I remember, uh, you know, I got a, um, I guess I'd done financial analysis years ago after Oxford and before Harvard Business School and on Wall Street. So I knew I could do analysis and I went to some temp agency uh, and took some Excel spreadsheet test and I guess I must have been pretty good. So I got some part-time uh, job at some local sports company. It was actually Head Sports as in Head Racket and Skis at the time they had a place in Maryland. And so for a few months, they needed help, you know, doing their budgeting. And I could do spreadsheets, you know, just tell me what you want and I could do something. Well, it was a small little baby step as, wow, I actually accomplished something and didn't screw it up. Wow. So for me, it wasn't initially service to others. And from then I got in financial analysis and business analysis for a aviation services firm and little bit by little bit. And then the analogy for what Ed's going through. So part of my you know, what I call almost, um, you know, drops of grace, if you will. Uh, gosh, there's something I can do and contribute. From there, I got into coaching and on two nonprofit boards, a Christian school board that my kids went to and elder at my church. And obviously the volunteer things aren't paid, but it's like, gosh, you know, I have a strategic mindset. I can help with strategic planning and governance. There's something I can do and contribute even with coaching which, you know, didn't pay a whole lot at the time. Somehow I can help others a little bit by little bit. Again, our backgrounds probably couldn't be more different. But, you know, my self-esteem was pretty low. Just a little bit by little bit, there were things I could do that contribute and serve others that gradually, you know, it was almost like building a, a mountain or building a wall. Brick by brick, my self-esteem would bounce back a bit. Does that resonate with you that like a little bit by little bit, your self-esteem might get, I don't know, 1% better than the day before as you were volunteering and helping all these folks? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's, the work is very hard to do, to live a life of significance. In order to do the hard work, we need inspiration. So when we serve others and we can see how others are overcoming their own obstacles, Oftentimes, that gives us that inspiration to do the hard work to overcome our obstacles. 
that's definitely how it was for me. So talk about the next chapter in your story, because you, you mentioned before, okay, you made a decision that you were going to try to uh, tackle, you know, addiction. Uh, you're doing things to help others, you know, volunteering your community. But you said it almost got worse when the numbing effect of addiction wasn't there. How, how did you keep going and do the hard yards? What was the motivation to get through what almost, I don't know if it was worse, but it felt really hard. How did you get through that? It got very hard. What I discovered was that just because you're done with drugs doesn't mean drugs are done with you. I mentioned the suicidal depression. I continued to experience psychosis, extreme paranoia around the FBI and the police department. What really got me through most of all was spirituality. I came to understand that there is, according to how I choose to believe things, there is a spiritual presence, a God, a universe, a great spirit, whatever the mm -hmm. proper name mm -hmm. is. I don't completely understand that spiritual presence, but I believe in the existence of this spiritual presence and the constant mm -hmm. pursuit of spiritual understanding, the constant pursuit of spiritual meaning in life. That was uh, what started as a flimsy little reed that I could cling to, to start dragging myself out of that dark, uh, and suicidal depression. The more I pursued a path of spirituality, the more I started to define what it meant for me. The more incredible, amazing people inspired me, persons of a faith-based background, persons mm -hmm. of a spiritual background. The one thing that really resonates, or, or one of the things mm -hmm. that most resonates with me is that the spiritual is the non-material. Mm -hmm. So when we think mm -hmm. of what is spirituality, one definition I like to use is that if it's non-material, then we might consider it spiritual. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. significance, a life of significance, absolutely to me, that is something that falls under my definition of the spiritual. When I pursue these, th this was my path. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you think of the spiritual, I know for me in my faith-based perspective, you know, I believe that, you know, God loves us just because we're all children of God kind of thing. And it doesn't, we don't have to achieve things. You know, it's a love that doesn't depend on us on us doing anything. Does your spiritual framework, does it give you a sense that you don't have to achieve things for the world to universe to believe you have value? Yeah, I believe this life is one stage of a, in a vast journey. And mm -hmm. what we do in this life somehow will affect what that next stage of the journey will look like. Mm -hmm. I'm a part of a faith-based community myself. Mm -hmm. I'm, a, uh, you know, I'm part of a Christian community. It's, it's a mm -hmm. wonderful community. I found that by learning from these members of my community, from by learning mm -hmm. from the persons with backgrounds in, in Zen, in mm -hmm. uh, Buddhism, persons of Muslim faith, that all the ideas, all the wisdom that's uh, passed along by so many incredible people, hopefully has planted mm -hmm. some small seed of wisdom within me that will continue to grow as, as time and, goes and by. And so as you were meeting people in different spiritual communities, did you feel that they accepted you for who you were, warts and all kind of thing? Absolutely. People believed in me when I couldn't believe in myself. People saw value in me that I didn't see in myself. The more good I put forth, the more I served others, the more I tried to give to the world around me, the more the world gave back in the form of these incredible people who just kept coming into my life.
And that's something very important for the listeners to know, because to get beyond um, crucible experiences, whether it's addiction, what have you, yes, it helped. I think spirituality, I think both Ed and I agree, can be a big help. But also friends that know who we are, that know, they realize the mistakes we've made, but they love and care for us anyway. And that unconditional love, that is it's sort of like rocket fuel. I mean, people that really know you and they love you anyway, it's like, really? How, they know everything. How in the world can they still want to be around me and be my friends? You might not have understood it at the time, but you appreciated it. And so that probably also, between spirituality and some friends who love you unconditionally, those probably were a big help, I'm guessing, in going through those hard early years. Is that fair? Um, addiction and mental illness that I found is overcoming the stigma. Yeah. Yeah, the symptoms of, uh, of the schizophrenia-like condition mm-hmm. that, that I had when I was on meth mm-hmm. and that persisted in some form or another, even to this day at times, mm-hmm. the symptoms themselves, at least after I quit meth, they never bothered me nearly as much as the fact I tried to hide them. Mm-hmm. I tried to conceal a big part of myself. So work, yeah, the friends I had, the people in my life, the way they accepted me, warts and all, that was such a big part of me being able to express myself to overcome the stigmas and get past the, get into the learnings from that, that crucible experience into the benefits. And I just love to add uh, mm-hmm. of all the help I received people in law enforcement, ironically gave me some of the most meaningful help mm-hmm. of, of all the people out there. I'm so grateful to the FBI, the police department, uh, protectors in general, pe- firefighters, persons in the military, along with faith-based communities and spiritual practitioners and many others. Uh, people in law enforcement really had uh, belief in me, gave me second chances. And as a result, I'm able to give something back to my community. So talk about that, because I know you know you went from a point being this paranoid that the FBI is out to get you to receiving an award from the director of the FBI. I mean, yeah. obviously, that's amazing, but there's some irony in that. So, so talk about how that happened and what that felt like. Yeah, well, I had to look, I was terrified of the FBI. Years after I quit meth, I still believed the FBI was, uh, was trying to pin 9-11 on me. I, I believed I had inadvertently befriended a 9-11 hijacker when I was kickboxing in Bangkok in 2000. I had all these beliefs. and Basically, it was terror, uh, a lot of fear, a lot of terror. I learned through these amazing people I mentioned, I learned that I would need to face my fears. If I was ever going to pursue my dream, if I was ever going to live that true life of significance, it's like the writer Joseph Campbell says, uh, in the cave you fear to enter lies the treasure you seek. You know, that, mm-hmm. that or Nelson Mandela, you know, courage mm-hmm. is not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. For me, there was so much fear and I learned I was going to have to face it. Basically, I got to meet some people who were FBI agents. I made it known to them that I wanted to serve the FBI as I had served the fire department when I'd mm-hmm. been a volunteer first responder. From there, I was nominated to this selective FBI Citizens Academy, where basically they take people and they put us through a six-week, one-night-a-week course on how the FBI fulfills its mission of protecting Americans. Along the way, I discovered that the FBI... I didn't really know this, but they do have a strong interest in serving communities or what I should say is they have a strong interest in further serving communities who are affected by incarceration and addiction. 
I'm so grateful to the FBI because they allowed me to not only have a second chance, but to contribute my particular unique strengths and insights into their work. And this is how I ultimately wound up in Washington, D.C. in May of 2019, shaking hands with the director of the FBI. I was one of 57 Americans to be honored with this community service award. Work 12 years ago, the head cressing that would have been in an FBI office would, would have been a lot different circumstance. It wouldn't have been shaking hands with a director, I'll tell you that. So uh, it just speaks so highly to the FBI, to the police department, to the fire department, to all these wonderful spiritual practitioners and individuals in faith-based communities that when a second chance is extended, yes, it benefits the receiver, me, but a second chance can also benefit the giver society just as much, if not more so. And, and what's sort of stunning to me here is that you, one would hope, you know, uh, spiritual communities are definitely not perfect, but in their better moments, you would hope that they would be, um, you know, reach out and accept you. But you found love and acceptance from, you know, law enforcement that they, you know, you'd think law enforcement are all about convicting people, putting people away, but they, they kind of gave you a second chance that they knew your record, so to speak, or the things that you struggled with, but yet they accepted you and welcomed you anyway. I mean, talk about how that felt, because that's an amazing story that I think most of us don't really think about, that law enforcement accepting us and almost, you know, wanting to give us a second chance. I talk about that how that felt. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, by no means do I in, uh, intend a blanket endorsement of law enforcement. Sure. I don't mean to, <laughs> to, yeah, I don't mean to endorse everything that sure. law enforcement does sure. or has ever done. But what I can say with uh, complete confidence is that there are law individuals within places like the FBI and the police department who, just like you say, Warwick, who are truly dedicated to protecting, to uh, serving individuals such as myself, who are committed to giving chances for life's turnarounds. I found that, you know, there are organizations and then there are people within those organizations. Mm -hmm. And they're often two different things. You know, we, when we can form these bridges of trust, when we can focus on what we have in common and what are our uh, common interests, and pretty much those interests are going to relate to making society better and making things safer and more uh, a better quality of life for everyone. When we can focus on these things, they tend to expand. In life, whatever we focus on tends to expand. It doesn't mean that there aren't things wrong. It doesn't mean that we need to fix what's wrong with, uh, with our society because there is a lot wrong. At the same time, what I've learned is let's also really focus on what's right. Let's focus on these FBI, uh, police, formerly incarcerated and currently incarcerated individuals. Let's focus on these human beings who are bettering themselves, who are bettering their communities, who are serving others. Because when we focus on the work that these individuals are doing, that work is going to expand. And that goodness uh, and, and those mm -hmm. benefits are going to extend throughout society. Right. And as you were extended, grace, forgiveness, you want to extend that to others, you know, to people that have been incarcerated and help them get beyond it. Because you would know better than I that where they call it recidivism, if that's the right word, of people going back to jail is, and committing crimes is, can be higher than we would like and just trying to help uh, stop that cycle. So talk a bit about, you know, your life of significance now. And, you know, you use that phrase, the cave that we fear to go in. I guess two different questions. What's your life significance now? And for Ed Cressy, what is that cave that you fear to go in? 
Well, first, the significance, in addition to serving law enforcement, I do, I volunteer inside maximum security prisons and in jails, coaching, as Gary was saying earlier, coaching uh, incarcerated men and women, unemployment, entrepreneurism, and uh, self-advocacy. I've As obvious as it sounds to say, I've discovered that if my birth circumstances had been the same as the women and men I work with behind uh, prison and jail bars, I would have been on the other side. You know, uh, these women and men have taught me very powerful lessons. To get to the other point, um, the fear is really in just being honest and expressing myself. Honesty, not so much as opposed to being dishonest, but really overcoming that stigma, being forthcoming about the mental health challenges that I've faced, uh, being forthcoming about the fact, you know, I don't consider myself mentally ill as, I don't know, mentally enhanced. You know, you hear about people who've uh, viewed reality in different ways, yet have served their societies mm -hmm. incredibly well. You know, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, uh, the list goes on and on. So the fear is in just being uh, honest, overcoming stigmas, and in doing so, bringing more and more value to the world around me in some small way, like so many incredible people have brought value to my life. I think that's so true. I think um, you mentioned Abraham Lincoln. He suffered what? from what they called at the time melancholy. That was the word mm -hmm. that they used. I don't know that we know quite what that means, but he did suffer bouts of depression, of just feeling low in the blues. What does that mean? I don't know, but it means something. There was something that he struggled with, but yet obviously he was able to, despite that, contribute. It didn't stop him contributing to the country and... Um, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation and, and so many other things. So that's important for the listener to know. And and just, you know, I mean, you, you serve so many people and so many communities and just the sense that um, people accept you for who you are because we all have made our mistakes. Some are more public than others. And just say, you know, it's, it's okay. You know, you try to atone as best you can. You try to avoid making the same mistake. But, you know, we're all human and, just that sense of accepting that it's okay to be broken. I mean, is there any person on the planet who's not broken in some fashion? I've not met them. Some are better at hiding it than others. Some people's fate is less obvious than others, but we're all broken in some ways. You know, it's just part of being human. Um, does that make sense? That I mean, have you realized as you're talking to other people and got to know them that how many perfect people have you met that have never struggled, never had divorce, never made mistakes. I mean, have you met too many of these perfect people in your travels? Well, one of the most inspiring books I've read is by, and, and first of all, I should say, I, by no means do I mean to compare myself to Dr. Martin Luther King or Abraham sure. Lincoln. Yeah, yeah, no, I, these, these people are inspiring. Sure. But uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, you know, I've read his book <clears> twice, <throat> Long Walk to Freedom. And th th I think he fits, uh, he fits well into the mold of, uh, you know, a human being who, like the rest of us, is flawed, yet, or was flawed, uh, yet he perseveres nonetheless. And, you know, you can look at the wonderful things, uh, the amazing things he's done to the world and continue, you know, his spirit continues to do. We have arrived at that point in the show when it's time to drop the landing gear and begin to land the plane. But as we ease into that, Ed, there's something that you've written several times as we've corresponded, and you included it in the in the sheet that we had you fill out before we began the interview. And that's uh, this is a statement that you made that I want the listeners to hear because 
A, it applies to your life as well, I believe, listener. And Warwick, with all the work that I've done for Crucible Leadership, this sounds like something that we could have written for Crucible Leadership, what I'm about to read that Ed wrote here. Examine whatever you're doing at a given moment. Any action you're taking, thought you're thinking, words you're uttering, does it contribute to your spirituality, to your self-improvement, or service to others? If not, change what you're doing. What's your reaction to that, Warwick? And Ed, maybe you can expand on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. When I think about um, self-worth, it's tied to significance because if you try to build money and success, I grew up with about as much money and power as you can, and I didn't see too many people that if you you know that really felt that good about themselves or certainly had happy lives but you know happiness joy self-worth it really is tied to significance tied to serving others when you're about trying to help other people in ed's case trying to help people with addiction incarceration just try to get beyond that and live productive lives that's where self-worth comes from self-worth comes from serving others when you serve yourself it doesn't build self-worth. I think I don't think human beings are wired that way. Have it, whoever wired them that way, whether it's the cosmos, spirituality, or God, we are wired to serve others. And only in that can we receive joy and happiness. I mean, does that resonate with you, Ed, as you've on your own journey to a life of significance? Absolutely. The more we help others, the more we help ourselves. The more we give, the more we get. The more we can bring to the world around us, the more the world gives us. And I found that it's not so much that reality influences our thoughts nearly as much as it is that our thoughts create the reality around us. Ed, you've talked a couple times about your book. Tell listeners a little bit about it. What's it called? What does it cover? And how can they get it when it is out in April of this year? Oh, yeah. Gary, thanks so much. My book is called My Addiction and Recovery. The subtitle is Just Because You're Done With Drugs Doesn't Mean Drugs Are Done With You. It will be, it's available right now on my website, www.edkressy.com. That's just my name.com. The, uh, and the book covers the story that, that we've been talking about, how second chances, yes, they benefit the person who receives the second chance, but they also benefit society and the persons who give those second chances. And I just want to say, um, I think of that cave you mentioned that, you know, we're all afraid to go into. It sounds like growing up, for you, that was writing. And there's a lot of things you're doing now to contribute to society with law enforcement and people behind bars and who suffer addiction. But the fact that you're writing, that to me is, it's a wonderful thing because it's something that you're afraid of probably your whole life. And you're doing it. When we conquer our deepest fears and pursue our deepest longings, ones that are actually can be productive, that's a beautiful thing, don't you think? I mean, I think it's a wonderful thing that you're writing, because that can't have been easy, because to get to a point where you could do that, I mean, that says a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, well, you know, think about your life, uh, look back upon your life years and years from now, what do you want to have looked back upon? What do you want to have to show for it? It probably won't be a bank statement, it probably won't be, uh, you know, a financial uh, statement, it probably won't be a, a home or a car, 
what you're going to want to have to show for your life when you're ready to go to the next stage of the journey, as I believe, you know, many of us in some form, or all of us perhaps in some form will, what are we going to want to look back upon? And it'll be just like you're talking about work, that life is significance, that having brought something of value to the world around us, uh, these are probably the things we're going to want to look back upon at the end of our lives and, and say that we've done. That is an excellent place, Ed and Warwick, to end our conversation today. Listeners, thank you for spending time with us, uh, listening to this uh, truly moving conversation about Ed's story. And, and we hope that you see the application for it in your life, even if the circumstances are different. And we're going to leave you with two practical thoughts as you move on beyond listening to this. The first of those thoughts is a suggestion. If you're struggling with moving beyond your crucible, take a page from Ed's book. Find an opportunity to serve others. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be grand. It doesn't have to you know, have a business plan attached to it. It just has to be focused on helping others. What you will find is that in addition to helping others, you'll find what Ed's described, what Warwick's described in many things that he's talked about and written about in Crucible Leadership. It helps others, but in the process of helping others and getting your mind off of your crucible, off of your bounce back, off of your trials and struggles, you'll also help yourself. So that's practical tip number one is a suggestion. Practical thought number two is a favor we'd like to ask you. If you've enjoyed, if you've felt that you've learned something, you've been edified by this conversation, we would ask you to subscribe to Beyond the Crucible on the podcast app that you're listening to it on right now. Doing so will ensure, first of all, for you that you'll never miss an episode, and it will help us share this and the messages that uh, that come through here, stories like Ed's, that will help us share the content of Beyond the Crucible to more people, to help them recognize that their crucible experiences can be the start of a great new chapter in their lives that lead to a life of significance. So, until next time, when we're together, thank you for spending time with us, and we look forward to the next time. 